the opportunity that's been ours also granted this afternoon to assemble and to gather in this way reminds us of just how blessed we each have been this day. So many in our world who have suffered difficulties and oppressions and persecutions beyond measure and yet in the serenity of this quiet Sunday afternoon we're able to come together perhaps reminiscent of those words in Psalm 26 verse 8. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. As we've each looked forward to this opportunity this evening, you might have noted in the bulletin that the particular title of the lesson tonight is the same one on the wall to my left, The Rule of Gold. And as precious as gold is, and as often something which in fact garners one's attention, tonight we'll give our attention to a particular lesson involving something identified in the Scriptures that has a golden twist and a golden thought, in fact, related to it. By way of introduction, we might well begin in the following way. We each are aware so very often about the subject known as ethics. Isn't it amazing that our governmental leaders put together panels that investigate it? We have students at universities and philosophy classes who discuss it and who in fact give great attention to the nature of ethics. We even on a more practical level discuss it from time to time with those about us. The banner of it, the character of it, the needfulness of it. Ethics, as we give thought to it, is simply a system of moral principles. We each have within us a means whereby we follow a certain ethical prescription, a certain set of ethical rules as we make decisions about us day by day. What is right and what is wrong? All of us have something within us that we utilize to help us make those decisions. Our youngsters, and sometimes we who are older, veer off on various paths by making wrong decisions about ethics. This evening, I would invite you to study with me the rule of gold as we ask, what is this system of ethics presented by the Savior Himself, and how does it differ from some other ethical rules that sometimes the world puts before us? As we discuss this tonight, some of the thoughts related to it will be presented in ways that might appear a bit interesting, perhaps even unfamiliar to us. But nonetheless, it's one that I'm sure each of us can appreciate in the sense that we've seen it many times, we've wrestled with it many times. Maybe you and I have even wrestled with the thought of how to make these decisions ourselves. As we begin that particular character tonight, we'll save the rule of gold till just a little bit later in the lesson. But first of all, might I invite you to think with me about a different metallic rule, the so-called rule of iron. What we shall do in our attempt tonight is to look at various and sundry ethical principles stated as various rules, and we will in fact ascend to the rule of gold near the end of the lesson. Let's start with the rule of iron for the time being. The rule of iron can simply be phrased as follows. Do unto others as you would not wish them to do to you. In essence, this is a rule that has behind it the character of might and force. Someone who has the position and power and they can enforce their will on others despite what the other may prefer or wish. Because they're stronger, they simply enforce their will. As we give thought to the character of this rule of iron, it's certainly fair to say some of the thoughts near the top remind us this really is a rule of strength. A person, perhaps in position, by delegation or otherwise, enforces his will on others 
despite the fact of any reason that might or might not be involved, simply because he or she is stronger. Their will is what they enforce to be done. Many a dictator has followed the rule of iron. In ruthlessness, in cruelty, doing to others what he would never wish them to do to him. As you think about the cruelty that has often been seen in it, I have in fact listed a thought or two that should help us see, be it Adolf Hitler, be it Benito Mussolini, be it Saddam Hussein, be it any number of others. The characteristics of the rule of iron often reign supreme as tyrants do their thing, as dictators choose what they will enforce upon those who are members of the citizenship. The rule of iron. But isn't it interesting that that rule of iron comes with no compassion? It isn't prompted by concern or the well-being for the needfulness of others. It simply is prompted by what I want I to accomplish, what I want me to do, and it doesn't matter whether it offends you, hurts you, harms you, damages you, or in any way is not preferable to you. Often those that are motivated by a rule of iron are certainly very selfish. They are certainly not bothered by what could be the thoughts and the feelings of other people. Furthermore, this rule of iron has quite often been found fashionable. That may be hard to believe. In our universities and schools, those who subscribe to Darwin's evolution notice he, in fact, put the rule of iron on the scientific map when he stated that organisms are in this constant battle that he termed this particular battle of natural selection. The survival of the fittest, he said. Those that are fittest survive. Those that aren't fittest don't deserve to survive, he said. Ever since that time, biologists and anthropologists and others have lifted it high and said, well, this is the natural order of things. The rule of iron, those that are mightiest survive and the others don't deserve it. For all those reasons, the rule of iron is something that can, in fact, be often chosen in other ways, not just in scientific circles. One of the last matters might be, consider this. Who is more helpless than a little child? And yet we, in number, execute them. We as a nation do, and even those around the world do the same. Isn't that an imposition of the rule of iron? I don't particularly care for this baby, despite the fact that I have, in fact, involved in the conception of it. I'll just eradicate it. The sadness that goes with a rule of iron expressed in a way like that only prompts us to think even more about it. What else might we say about this rule of iron? Maybe one or two final comments. Isn't it true there are some examples in the Word of God about those who chose to pursue the rule of iron? As we revisit the scene in 1 Kings 21, it was there that the man on the throne was named Ahab. But in some ways he was weak and spineless. It was his wife Jezebel who in many ways gave the orders and commands, but Ahab desired the vineyard of Naboth. This vineyard was a nice one. In many ways Ahab had a desire for it. Not only a desire, we might even say he coveted it. As he came home somewhat sad and his wife learned the tale and the story, she concocted a scheme whereby she would run rampant over the thoughts, the possessions, and feelings of Naboth. Ultimately, he was executed, and the vineyard became Ahab's. 
here was a group of people, namely two, who chose to pursue the rule of iron and get what was not theirs to have. As they ran over the feelings and the possessions of Naboth, what a sad spectacle it was. Here was the king who acted this way, the king supposedly over God's people. We might even note that there were other examples besides them. What about that rather notable scene in Matthew chapter 2? When here the man was Herod, he had gotten word about supposedly one born and he took the liberty of having all the baby boys in Bethlehem slaughtered. He wanted no competition to the throne. He wanted no one that could serve as any threat to his reign. Wasn't that harsh? Wasn't that a rule of iron? One intent upon removal of all competition so that he could reign rule and supreme. The rule of iron doesn't just present itself, though, in rulers and those that reign in governmental position. It would seem that in 3 John 9 it even appeared in the church. There was a diatrophies, and wasn't it true that John, as he wrote to them, said he loved to have the preeminence, but did he not also say he didn't receive us? John made careful observation. He had written to that congregation or that particular arrangement but yet Diotrephes wished to have nothing to do with it. He, in fact, refused it. He, in fact, pushed it aside. He was determined to have the preeminence. Diotrephes, too, you see, was choosing to abide by the rule of iron. Maybe one final thought or comment, and we shall then have to pass to the next rule. But isn't it safe to say that the rule of iron, due to the fact that there's no compassion, no concern, no love in its prompting, it often leads to strife, it often leads to discomfort, it often leads to great difficulty on the part of those on the receiving end of it. In fact, isn't it often true it leads to tragedy, and it leads to misery, and it leads to heartache, and it leads to difficulties. When it appeared in the church, notice in the world of diatrophies it wasn't pleasant. If it were to appear in your life or mine today, it too doesn't lead to anywhere good. This Word of God doesn't uphold the rule of iron, does it? Again, that particular rule as we wrote it, do unto others as they would not do unto you. Bible doesn't endorse this. But let us turn our attention to another rule. One that's not quite so much as the rule of iron, but yet it is the rule of brass. Just as surely as there are different metals and they are regarded as different degrees of preciousness, somewhat above iron comes this metal you and I would recognize as the alloy brass. It has often been called a rule of brass and it reads as follows. Do unto others as they have done unto you. You and I more than once have witnessed this one, haven't we? Maybe we have even been prompted to feel this way ourselves, to act towards somebody else in like figure and like manner to the way that they have acted toward us. If they have been those who have extended kindness and friendliness and concern, then you and I feel good about doing the same. But on the other hand, if they have been mean and unfriendly and somewhat harsh toward us, we might well be tempted to act the exact same way toward them. You'll notice that this brassy rule, this rule of brass, is thus very different than the rule of iron. But it is worthy of our attention tonight. Does the Bible endorse it? In what way is it set forth? 
And if the Bible does it, might we note some examples of things that remind us that we should choose a different path than this one. Isn't it amazing how often you and I, by virtue of our senses, witness activities about us, and we witness the way that individuals behave. Maybe this person has a tendency to be friendly. Maybe he even intends to be helpful to me, and thus I am far more likely to act helpful, friendly, and even with concern with regard to him. But on the other hand, that person is grouchy, that person that's somewhat unhelpful, in fact, even hateful. Has it often been your temptation in mind to act just as hateful, just as unhelpful, and just as unfriendly toward him? If so, you and I have then been tempted to act according to the rule of brass. This rule of brass might well be highlighted as follows. The Bible does have some things to say about it. Why don't we revisit Leviticus 24 for just a moment and look at that rather famous presentation in verses 17 and following. We each remember it well. It was on that occasion as Moses directed thoughts and comments to the children of Israel, he said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, breach for breach, life for life. All those matters remind us, doesn't it, that there was at least this element of sentiment with regard to this rule of brass even then. When the cities of refuge were constructed, when the six of them finally came into their finality, we remember that one of the principal thoughts behind them was this. If an individual had a part to play in taking the life of another, but doing so without premeditation and doing so without purposeful desire, then that one could flee to the city of refuge and remain there until the death of the high priest. And he would be protected from the vengeance that might be taken by the family members of the one deceased. The cities of refuge remind us that there at least was something to be said for the thought about this rule of brass, but might we be quick to say it was not the highest ethic in the Old Testament and it was not the clearest and most noble one. Another thought that might be seen, however, would be these other passages, such as Proverbs 20, verse 22. When Solomon made that observation and by inspiration penned that thought, he said, not to do evil to another just because they've done that to you. Here was an instance in which that was not the highest degree of appreciation. Notice that one more statement might be made concerning it. Just as surely as this brassy rule was thus set forth not as the principal and highest means of approach, it might be wise for us to come to the New Testament quickly and observe. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 15 when near the close of that first Thessalonian letter, Paul said, See thou render not evil for evil. In other words, here was a clear-cut case when the inspired writer said, Don't you act toward another in evil just because they've acted in evil toward you. In other words, the brassy rule was not the one that was to be enforced in the life and times of those given to Christianity. It was not to be the one pursued by those devoted to the cause of the Master. One more time in 1 Peter 3, 9. We see, render not railing for railing. When someone has railed upon you and me, we ought not to in turn seek to rail on them. 
you and I have a higher calling than that. Isn't it interesting that when we see sometimes children on the playground and one will take the bat or the ball with which another is playing and the first thing the one does maybe is push the other one down. Seeking to, in fact, do that unto them or something akin to what has been done to them. As we grow older, we have to learn that sometimes one has to, with great intent, decide not to act toward another in the same way they've acted toward us. There are times that's difficult, isn't it? There are times it's hard not to think the rule of brass is the order of the day. But as we've learned, Paul again wrote, See thou, render not evil for evil. The fantastic character of this one brings us to one final observation. Wasn't it Jesus who himself said the rule of brass was not to be the rule in force in his kingdom? In Luke 6 verses 31 and following, Jesus in fact directly said, Don't you do those matters to others as they've done to you, but rather you are to be guided and guarded by a higher consideration. And it's that other consideration that we need to come to a bit later in the lesson this evening. So far as we look at the rule of iron, do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. And this rule of brass, do unto others as they have done unto you. We've learned that neither one is the one subscribed by those who have an interest in the will of God. But might we give thought to a third rule, the so-called rule of silver. This silver rule is also one that might be written in a way like this. The reading of it is a bit different. I would invite you to note the opening statement. Do not unto others as you would not have them do unto you. That clearly reads in a somewhat confusing fashion because of all the knots that are found in it. If it helps, look at the second part of it first. Do not wish to do unto you. Those things that you would prefer others not to do unto you, don't you do that unto them, is in essence what the rule of silver says. This rule of silver, as you can see, does read very differently than the rule of iron, and no doubt it's higher on the list of ethic than it is. And furthermore, it's even a very different matter than the rule of brass. After all, it's still even higher than it. Now, perfection is not found in it. It's somewhat interesting to me, at least as I research this, that there have been those in history who have asserted that this really is the highest form of ethic. It's hard for me to believe they can truly think that way. Notice all the negatives in this. This rule, in fact, seems to me to be such that it forbids a great deal, but it doesn't really encourage anything. Notice again, all these negatives in it. All it says is what not to do. It doesn't ever say what should I do. It doesn't ever enforce upon me a positive set of ethical behavior. It only says what I ought not to do. We might be quick to say that the Word of God is never complete in that fashion. God's Word certainly does say what things not to do, but that's only one half the battle. What should one fill one's life with? What should be those positive emphases and thrusts? What should be that positive set of behaviors? This seems a rather hollow ethic, doesn't it? Only what things not to do. It doesn't tell me what I should do, what I must do with those sets of things with which we should all be guided and guarded. 
some of the additional comments on that slide highlight one of the principal thoughts about this ethic that seems so clear. It is in many ways a do-nothing ethic. I don't want to get involved. It's not my problem. He got himself into the mess. He can get himself out of it. That, in essence, is the rule of silver. A complete interest to remain at a distance, an interest to not be involved, an interest to allow others to work out what they got themselves into. When we think of it in that regard, and when we approach it from quite that way, since that is, in essence, what's involved in it, look at some of the ways it appears as individuals chose this approach at various times in the sacred scriptures. One of the most notable surely would have to be that parable the Lord told in Luke the 10th chapter. The Good Samaritan. Think with me how that unfolded. Here was a gentleman who found himself in such a dire circumstance. Thieves had come upon him. As he was involved in that journey, they come about him, they robbed him, they beat him, they left him for half dead. Clearly the thieves were acting by the rule of iron, doing unto others what they would never want someone to do to them. However, as one might think the good fortune would be, there were a couple of individuals who came by, a priest and a Levite in due turn later on in that man's certain and dire circumstance, might we ask ourselves, what did each one do? They came and looked upon the case and passed by on the other side. Both of them acted by the rule of silver. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I wasn't the one that caused it. I'm not the one that brought these sad circumstances about. The rule of silver. But might we notice that there was a good Samaritan who acted neither by the rule of iron nor by the rule of silver. He acted by a different rule, a rule to which we shall turn in a moment as we close the lesson tonight. There are some verses that challenge us to appreciate the lacking character of this rule of silver. I would invite you to notice Titus 2 verse 14. As Paul addressed that brief letter to Titus, it was in that case, beginning in verse 11, he said, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly this present world. Looking unto Jesus, as he mentions there in verse 13, looking unto Jesus. As we certainly look unto him, the critical point that he makes is then this, He gave himself for our sins and possessed us unto Himself, a people of His own possession. That reminds us the intensity that should be ours in the production and pursuit of good works. And let ours also maintain good works for necessary uses that we be not unfruitful. Titus 3 verse 14. Those good works that we pursue might well be highlighted by that statement in 1 Peter 3.11 seeking to, in fact, leave evil aside and always pursuing that which is good, you'll notice he doesn't say by qualification, only in those cases when someone has done that to you. It's far broader than that. In every instance, as we've seen to this point, the rule of iron, the rule of brass, the rule of silver, all of them, are things that have prompted us to appreciate. We see individuals choosing these ethical prescriptions. When we watch the nightly news, we see lots of people who follow the rule of iron. 
We even see from time to time those who choose the rule of brass as their ethical guide. We from time to time see those that choose the rule of silver. In every instance, though each one falls short of what Jesus taught. Let's come to the rule of gold. It was the lesson text read for us a few moments ago tonight in Matthew 7 verse 12. The rule of gold is one that far surpasses the rules of iron, brass, and silver. None of them, despite what the ethicist might say, this rule of silver is not the same as the rule of gold. Matthew seven twelve again reads, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. The rule of gold, that golden rule that is, as it is sometimes referenced, is a rule that has often been the one that individuals have turned to as that highest echelon of ethics of all. Consider it with me for just a few moments. And might we be quick to say that at least as far as I know, the earliest statement of this ethic was the one by Jesus. None of the ethical teachers that preceded him taught the rule of gold as far as I know. Now some of them wrote things like the rule of brass and some of them wrote things like the rule of silver. But at least as far as I know in the ethical considerations of philosophy and others, Jesus, the Son of God, was the first one to state the rule of gold. Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. That might be stated like this. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That doesn't sound at all like the rule of iron. And it doesn't sound at all like the rule of brass. And it doesn't sound at all like the rule of silver either. Doing unto someone else, not like what they have done to you, but the way that you wish they would have acted toward you. Doing unto others as you would prefer as you would select, as you would choose that they would have done unto you. That's what our Savior said. Isn't that remarkable? And oh, what a deep and profound ethical teaching it was. And yet it occurred in the Sermon on the Mount, early on in the Lord's ministry. And as yet as He set it forth before the human family, it has remained unchallenged as the highest law of ethics to this day. And yet it is the law of His kingdom. It's the law of those that would have a desire, and a concerted effort to follow the teachings of the Son of God. Look with me at just a moment of some of the things to be seen. Wasn't it the same rule that Paul echoed in Galatians 6.10 when he said, As ye have therefore opportunity, do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Wasn't it a similar thing that was echoed at least in an indirect way in a number of other verses? as even Jesus Himself taught in Matthew 5.44. That thought perhaps simply requires us to think for just a moment about some of the words that our Savior employed. I would invite you to look with me at just a few of them. He did say, therefore, all things. He didn't say some things, a few things, or even most things. He said all things. The meaning would thus be in every case. And you and I can then see that we are prompted by and should be motivated by this rule of gold in every instance. But he goes on to say, whatsoever. That's a rather general word that includes with it the thought that in every instance, in all cases, 
This rule of gold is to be the preeminent one. That same rule proceeds with this phrase. We notice it says, You would that men should do to you. The English Standard reads that, Whatever you wish that others would do to you. It's not that we had any difficulty understanding the King James rendering of it. But the thought is still so profound, isn't it? You and I, as we analyze a circumstance, what would I have wished him or her to do to me? It, it should be that that prompts my actions toward them. It should not be what they have done to me, what they might have done to me, what they could have done to me. It should be what do I wish they would have done to me. In every circumstance, oh, what a change that would make in our homes. What a change that would make in society. What a change that would make in the world at large. What a change it would often make in the church. When we would behave and act toward others in the way we would wish them to have acted toward us. That's a fantastic teaching, isn't it? That one last phrase is, Even so do unto them. It is rather remarkable that Jesus, at the very final statement of that verse, said, for this is the law and the prophets. It would thus appear from the teaching of our Savior that that was really the very point to which all the teaching of the prophets and all the law of Moses pointed in its highest degree of completeness. It was all summarized in that statement. When you and I think back to all the laws and all the verses that contain regulations and statutes and commandments and orders and laws... And yet every one of them pointed to the reality of that rule of gold. Isn't that remarkable? It's no wonder that from an early age we should seek to ingrain in our children that always with a careful discussion and a remarkable consideration of the rule of gold to understand that that's what the Master had in mind. Even today as we seek to apply it in our lives, certainly one appreciates the needfulness of caution, the needfulness of careful deliberation, the needfulness of always striving to uphold the rule of gold as the highest ethic. Despite the fact that there are those today in those ethics classes I mentioned earlier at colleges and universities who speak about various and sundry ethical laws, it is interesting that quite often they come back to discuss this one. And doesn't it remind us about the example of our Savior Himself? In Isaiah 53, this suffering servant who himself was led as a sheep, dumb before its shearers. Jesus, you see, could have done so many things by removing himself from the terrible anguish of that hour and yet out of his love for us, his love for the very ones doing that to him, he remained on that cross. What great love that was. You'll also notice in Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The marvel and the wonder of all that reminds us of the preciousness of this rule of gold. For isn't it true that Jesus tasted of death for every man? Hebrews 2, verse 9. Tonight, as we've looked at these various rules, four of them, the rule of iron, the rule of brass, the rule of silver and the rule of gold. We have found an increasing listing about the degree of these as the Bible would endorse them. And as we've come to the rule of gold, we've found such a special thing 
emanating from the lips of our Savior Himself. What rule do you and I choose to follow today? Do we often dip back into the rule of brass and just treat others the way that they have treated us? Do we sometimes choose the rule of iron so that my will will be the one done regardless what you prefer or think or even if it's the best? Do we sometimes lapse into the rule of silver, simply refraining from doing things just because we know you wouldn't do them to me? You'll notice it's that rule of gold that enjoins that positive initiative, that positive activity. Jesus, the Son of God, came. And tonight He would plead with you to think urgently and seriously about the case in your life. What rule have you followed? He came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. John 10, verse 10. He came to seek and save that which was lost, the language of Luke 19, 10. If this very night, you would be one interested in learning more about the rule of gold as you learn the Word of God and seek to implant it in your heart. We'd be honored to assist you in a public response if that would be the needful thing in your life. This hymn of encouragement has been chosen. And if you would be one that would be in a position of needfulness for public response, realize that if you're an alien sinner, one that's never responded initially to the gospel call of invitation... The Lord Himself demands this of you first. Hear the word of the Lord. Hearing the truth that He's come, hearing the fact He is the Son of God, and then believe that to be true. Believe it with all your heart. Repent of those sins in your life, those things that have separated you from the God of heaven. Confess His great name as the Son of God and then be baptized. That particular plan of salvation isn't my idea, not the eldership here at Pippin, it is the absolute requirement of the God of heaven. If you have become a member of the body of Christ and have known all the blessings that come with it, Ephesians 1.3, but you have since allowed yourself to be motivated by the rules the world teaches rather than the rules of our Master, why not come back tonight in a public way if that's the needful thing and ask us and beseech us to pray to God on your behalf? God has promised that He will hear that penitent prayer of yours as you confess those sins and He will forgive those things from your life. If this very night we could be of some helpfulness to you in one of these ways or even just prayers for strength, we'd be honored to be those who could be of assistance at this time. And if we could help, would you not come while together we stand together and while we sing?